Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm joined tonight by my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. So it's a true Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we're talking Grand Slams. It's a term we borrowed from our friends Jim DeRogatis and Greg Cott at Sound Opinions podcast, and it refers to a band or an artist that's released four great albums in a row. Not four good records or three in one stinker. It, it's perfect, you know, we're talking like perfect, consistent, excellent. It's a rare feat if you really get down to it, and it's not as frequently accomplished as it may seem. Um, you know, do the math in your head. But um, on Sound Opinions, I know it's one of my favorite segments that they do, and I also feel like crawling to the microphone and arguing with them sometimes because they, nev- they never address the couple of bands that I think pulled it off. So um, this is our chance to, uh, to uh, borrow their concept and um, you know, sort of make our arguments for the, for the artists that we uh, think are, are deserving. And... Um, you know, so jump in, you guys. What are what are some of the uh, you know what? I, mean, I think what we're going to do, actually, sorry, is to um, you know sort of eliminate two of the most obvious examples of the Grand Slam, which is the Beatles, who did it twice and never didn't put out a great album, and the Stones, um, just because of the sort of um, you know the sort of colossal nature of their uh, of their shadow over the rest of uh, rock and roll, but. Um, Certainly, they were the first two, I think, to to really, you know, to solidify like what a what a Grand Slam looked like, along with the along with the Beach Boys, I think. But what's interesting about the Stones is actually, you know, while arguably you could say that any any four album streak that the Beatles put out was a Grand Slam, um, I think, uh, you know, the Stones for for my money only did it once. Me too. I was going to say the same thing. It's funny, um, and uh, and and I would call them four of the greatest albums of all time. But I, I'm with you. I mean, you know, the, the... Obviously, I'm talking about Voodoo Lounge, Bridges to Babylon. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Because I was talking about Tattoo You, Still Life, <laughs> Undercover, and Dirty Work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to come up with my own sexual innuendo to name an album after, but forget it. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sticky Fingers, Hot Rocks, Beggar's Banquet, on Exile on Main Street. Let um, it bleed. Let yeah, it bleed let in bleed. there. And I, you know, I, some girls, but there's a, there's a gap in between. Um, you know, I, I cast my vote for Satanic, her Satanic Majesty's request, but it was a very, very lonely voting booth right there. Um, <laughs> I, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, so given that, that there are a couple of, uh, you know, a couple bands that we've sort of eliminated from the conversation, it's going to be interesting to hear who you guys uh, think have pulled it off. It may not be uh, the sort of uh, epic and behemoths uh, of the rock world that that uh, other people might be thinking they well, are. Well, I think it's a funny topic too, and a topic. One of the reasons I like it, and I'm, I'm like you, and I'm a big fan of the sound opinions uh, conversations around this, is you know when you're describing a grand slam, like it just doesn't happen often, even in the sport of baseball. So, you know, you dig back a little bit um, as I was sort of trying to to come up with my list for this show. And there's a lot of good three-run, you know, streaks. And there's a lot of decent, even two-album streaks. I mean, a couple that come to mind, and we can talk about why we think it's so difficult. But, you know, for instance, uh, you know, Bob Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde. Um, you know, and I, I almost convinced myself, oh, there's a fourth there, but there isn't. You know, and it's... Uh, you you want to think there is yeah, so badly. and that's yeah. what yeah. happens Dylan with, the, fans with the triple, that, you know. You know? The, if you ask Dylan fans, I think he can hit 16 uh, run homers. But I, I well, yeah, yeah but, Rolling but Stone magazine, fans, I think uh, <laughs> it feels the same if, way. 
if you ask Dylan fans, they also say he's good in concerts, so clearly their opinion isn't <laughs> worth anything. Yeah. Um, no, but there are a bunch of, I mean, there, you know, so why do you guys think it's so hard to do? I mean, this is four albums in a row, obviously go, going back in time. You know, the, it used to be an album per year, so it wasn't as, um, you know, you didn't have, you weren't going over an arc of your lifespan um, that, you know, yeah. now require, that's now required to put out four albums. Why? Yeah, the uh, dynamics, I mean, the dynamics are, are interesting. You, you know, you hear, well, first of all, you think a lot about, like, things like a sophomore slump. And, I mean, you just, you are, a sophomore slump, um, obviously referring to a second album, which, which you know, falls off the uh, the high quality of the first but if you think about it you know repeating greatness at, at any stage just just doing it again once you know and having two great albums in a row is difficult you expend so much creative energy on on putting together a great album that and then you end up touring it um, I mean you you don't spend as much time necessarily uh, thinking about you know the writing process in the next stage or alternatively um, you know like a band like Pink Floyd, you get given so much money and so much studio time that you overthink it. Um, and, uh, you know, or alternatively, an, another model um, is that uh, your lead singer dies in the case of Nirvana. Um, so, you know, there, there are all sorts of, um, there are yeah, all sorts I mean, of potential roadblocks. It's the old adage, of, you know, you have your entire life to write your debut album and you have six months to write your follow-up. Yeah. Um, you know, that's always been, you know, the uh, sort of reasoning behind why it's so difficult. Um, you know, and particularly if your debut album is successful, uh, then you've got even less time to, to and creative uh, energy to put into your second well, record. Yeah, and it, it, it's another. an interesting distinction, I would just say, I mean, quickly, it's, you know, of, of bands that basically came out of the gate with a Grand Slam, um, which I think is sort of, you know, one category in its own right, that never experienced the sophomore slump that just kept hitting on all cylinders from, from the get-go. Um, and bands that, you know, some of whom, like and the Rolling Stones being a good example, that, that took a little bit more time to really develop that sort of, uh, like, that, that high level of performance that they've got but but when they did they were able to sort of like find a lane and stay in it for a while mm. well and there's also and the groups that tend to put out too much material you know so you have well, we just did a pod recently Wynn and I on Unguided by Voices a band we both love who has a hundred albums put out, yeah they put <laughs> out know? six albums since and we it's, did the uh, so you we talked about two of the best ones but you know and I think, too, there's, you know, it's hard to come up with new, and not, I don't think any of the bands we're going to talk about today really reinvented themselves or anything like that. I mean, it, it certainly is, um, you like a band because they sound a certain way, and, and you know, the, the best bands sort of grow that sound or, or continue to make that sound interesting and, ex, you know, experiment to some degree. But, you know, it's not that easy, I think, to, you know, if you sound a certain way, sometimes you just get stuck in, in a rut, and, you know, somebody like... I don't mean a rut, but like you think about like Ty Seagal or Ryan Adams, for instance, people that put out a lot of music. I love, you know, both their sounds for different reasons, but, you know, it's, it's hard to string together that many great albums sounding that way because all of their albums sort of sound a certain way. Well, it's interesting yeah. that you bring up reinvention because two of the bands that I think can think of that are two of the greatest bands in history um, have never done it, and that's Radiohead and U2, and largely because of reinvention. I mean, they've they've always had to, they've always wanted to put the brakes on doing the same thing too frequently, and and thus um, usually have a uh, a change of gears record somewhere in there that doesn't quite measure up to the greatness that's come before it or after it. 
No, that's absolutely right. I, w- I was going to mention Radiohead as well. I mean, I think, you know, they are so close to having a Grand Slam and actually have, um, you know, and, and really it's, I think, Amnesiac sort of is sort of in a between. question mark in yeah. there. Yeah, it's because they, I mean, but they have, you know, like you, three, three round this incredible run. Exactly, exactly. You know, but but two triples in a game is, is still not the same thing, you know. And, it's like hitting for the cycle the and not getting the single, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, no, I mean, that's uh, that's impressive. And the, the only other sort of honorable mention in this category, I think are worth it. Are are uh, are the Who, obviously, and, and um, uh, Tommy, who's next, and Quadrophenia, and then you know, Public Enemy's first three albums were awesome. Um, and uh, I think you you pointed out Wyndham Daft Punk is another one on that list. Yeah, there's a bunch. I mean, I would, I don't, I don't know that any of us are going to be discussing the White Stripes, but I think they. You know, a case can they be might made. Have, they might have done it, yeah, and, yeah. and actually in about six. I mean, I, I it, you can certainly make a strong case, and, and maybe uh, maybe time will tell, and history will will smile on them, and they'll be included in the next batch we do. And we like the sound opinions, guys. We'll do another segment on this, and uh, and bring some more people to the party. But um, yeah. do you want to uh, take a quick break and then and dive into our our individual grand slams? Do it. Sounds good. All right. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking Grand Slams, which, of course, uh, a, a category that was created by the guys over at Sound Opinions, and we are simply borrowing it. But, um, uh, Jer, you want to kick off the uh, conversation? Who are your... Uh, we're, we're each going to do three bands that we think have uh, have hit this um, mythical uh, pinnacle of artistic output. And uh, who are yours, Jer? Yeah, so I, I was able to, to get... Three bands that I, I feel like you know accomplish this feat, and um, I'm gonna go one by one and kind of talk a little bit about the band and just name check the the four albums that I think are, are a grand slam. But um, the first band on my list is a band that we love on the Brother Brother Pod, uh, Spoon from Austin, Texas, and uh, 
this is a band that I think, you know, solidly put in one of the best Grand Slams of the early sort of mid-2000s, a band that's been around since 96, a band that I saw quite often when I was living in Austin in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I got to say, like, one of those bands that you kind of, you know, like their song, The Underdog, sort of nobody really, I think, thought they were going to be what they are today. I mean, they're still pumping out great albums. And I think, like, Radiohead maybe have, like, one album in between that breaks up, you know, really an eight-album run. But, um, you know, I started off with, you know, Girls Can Tell in 2001. And, and like I said, I used to see them a lot. They were playing mainly as a three-piece. They'd been dropped by Elektra. Um, and, you know, I... I have to admit I wasn't overly impressed with Spoon at the time like I thought they were pretty good and certainly got a lot of local uh praise but but seemed like one of many bands that had gotten sort of swallowed up in the the major label um hoopla yeah, their chief chief local rival at that point I believe was Fastball Fastball yeah who had the hit and the hit that they never had and um so, you know, Britt Daniel and uh, co. put out Girls Can Tell in 01, which really kind of just reinvented their sound, kind of, not reinvented, but really, I guess, honed their sound. And, uh, you know, sort of uh, Eno, the drummer, I'm forgetting his first name, throw it out there. Jim. Jim Eno, yeah. So the main two guys in the band, and, and I think took a lot of cues from, like, the Kinks, but in a real sort of, like, uh, scaled-back fashion, followed up by 2002's Kill the Moonlight, which really put them on the indie map. I think uh, 01, Girls Can Tell, was certainly highly thought of. 02, Kill the Moonlight, really came out of the gates. 05's Gimme Fiction, which I, I think is another, actually my favorite Spoon album. Um, another great album. And then 2007's, another one that um, really knocked it out of the park was Ga 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 Ga. And, uh, you know, interesting enough, this is a band that went from Electra to Merge Records and uh, knocked, you know, four great albums out in a row and, uh, you know, one of our favorite bands. And slippers set out for you I know you think that it ain't too far But I I hear a call of a lifetime ring Felt the need to get up for it Oh, you cut out the middle man second one I'm going to talk about, and we'll discuss all of these, um, is Wilco. So an, a band that rose from the ashes of Uncle Tupelo, pretty well documented. Jeff Tweedy put out, a, uh, I think, a, a fine debut album with the remaining members of Wilco, and then something happened. You know, he teamed up with Jay Bennett and kicked into uh, what would be, you know, four, I think, of some of the greatest American Americana albums out there. And, and I'm going to mention, too, that, you know, starting with the double album being there in 1996, um, followed up by Summer Teeth in 99, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which, you know, by a lot of 
folks and fans and music critics is, is thought of as their best piece of work. And then the darker, kind of more bleak, but I, I still think very worthy of the list, The Ghost is Born in, in 2004. The amazing thing about Wilco's run here, too, is at the same time they put out in 98 and 2000, two volumes of Woody Guthrie songs with Billy Bragg, where they created the entire music for and, and the song structures for. So really, I mean, they had, in, in Mermaid Avenue, Volume 1, at least, I, I think is also a masterpiece. But we'll stick with being there, Summer Teeth, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and Ghost is Born. And then my third artist, um, who I think hit, hit the Grand Slam, is actually a hip-hop group, and it's uh, A Tribe Called Quest. So hip-hop's a funny one. I mean, there are so many good debut hip-hop albums, and, and there's so many great one-offs. Um, and I think there's a handful of, of groups that put out more than really one great album. It's very single-driven, uh, you know, um, style of music. I think more today, actually, we're getting a lot more albums again, where people are really kind of focused on the album. But um, People's Instinctive Travels and Paths of Rhythm, The Low End Theory, Midnight Marauders, and Beats, Rhymes, and Life, to me, are, are, are four excellent, complete albums and really kind of innovative hip-hop records that you can listen to start to finish and kind of put a whole new sound on the map for generations to come. So those are my three uh, artists and albums, and uh, you know, let's talk about them. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, both uh, Spoon and, and Wilco were bands that you turned me on to. Um, that you know, when you were down in Austin, and um, both, I, you know, I'm a massive fan of both. And I, you know, in, in real time, it didn't it didn't seem like this was you know consolidating or or coming together in the same way that I would have you know that. Sometimes you sometimes you recognize greatness in real time, and sometimes you definitely need to to take a retrospective look. and And it really is the the consistency of both of these bands is really more admirable in retrospect uh, than it was when I was um, experiencing it the first time through. In fact, in Wilco's case, I just I didn't even like A Ghost Is Born until about four years after it came out, and I started <laughs> listening to it, and then just it really grew on me. It's actually one of my favorites. Um, I do think they hit the brakes with Sky Blue Sky, but other again, other people um, would argue uh, for that one as well. Um, in terms of uh, Spoon, I just they just kept getting better and and um, you know just kept perfecting their own sound and and, and um, you know sort of weaving together all their influences um, one out one excellent album after another. And then Tribe, uh, like you said, is is one of those rare. Uh, hip-hop album bands um of which there are only a handful and again um more currently than there were but um yeah i, I would more applaud your um selections than than really argue them how about you christian no i mean i think in in spoon's case uh 
they're another one of these groups that's that's actually really close to stringing together um, something significantly longer than a, than a Grand Slam. I mean, I think Gaga, 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 um, and you know, even even I, I think the the question sort of becomes around transference and they want my soul. Um, whether uh, you know whether those are, are truly sort of worthy of the the mantle um, that they'd established, but I certainly think Hot Thoughts like returns to that level of play. Yeah, I was gonna say Transference is the one that kind of trips me up, and I do like it. There's some great songs on there. I love They Want My Soul. I actually like it um, as much as Hot Thoughts um, and the early ones. So I, I think you're right, but I think it's sort of their amnesiac is Transference for me, where there's like two or three tracks that kick ass on it, but it, it's a little bit you know lost and muddled. Spotty. Yeah, and I mean I think two. You know the thing about all three of these groups to me. And these albums is, is you can kind of you can also track the growth of the group. So like for instance, tribes, people's instinctive travels and paths of rhythm. The rhymes are a little like goofy and weak and playful, but the jazz and the samples are really like you know sort of uh, thick and and kind of new to hip hop. And that's sort of the golden era of, of hip hop. Um, you know that album came out in 1990 or even pre golden era. I mean it was sort of like the beginnings of sort of things that were different in in that in different styles. You know, followed by the low end theory, which was a, a real sort of like I think the album that really put them on on the map as far as like both college music fans yeah. and sort of street cred, right? I mean, they also had a, a real solid sort of hip hop street following, and then you know, Midnight Marauders grew, and, and then Beats, Rhymes, and Life probably the the weakest of them all, but still I think a really dense, great tribe album that you can listen to start to finish and you can just hear that the flows and the sounds and the samples all kind of grow and in and, and each in different years too so there's different things happening in the genre same with wilco and and, and uh, spoon though where you have being there is really a tribute to rock and roll i mean it's a double album i mean complete with you know if you flip the side to end of the century it goes right into the next song you know it's like flipping over the record and the chord progression starts again which is really cool Summer Teeth being, you know, much more experimental and, and sort of Beatlesque, and then Yankee Hotel Foxtrot sort of being their their opus. But uh, I, you know, to your point, when I really like a Ghost Is Born too. I mean, it's, it's well documented that that Tweety at the time had, you know, it was struggling pretty heavily with painkillers, and it, it's you know the band had sort of splintered. People had been kicked out or left, um, and it's it's basically recorded live. I mean, it, it's really just you know he took away sort of all of the mechanics that were kind of in the other albums and, and, you know, just has some great songs. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a good album to go back and listen to. It's a really strangely sequenced uh, album because I remember loving the last three songs on the album and not really liking the rest of it until I, you know, took a good hard listen to it. You know, like I said, four years past its, uh, uh, original release date, but it was, um, you know, it was you know, theologians and, and I'm a wheel, uh, at the end of the record where, you know, what I was like, why would you back, why would you backload this so heavily and put all the, you know, sort of drony stuff at the beginning? And uh, but you know, as I got to know and love the album, it started to make sense even in the sequencing. Um, yeah, and I, th- I think to you know to really track that band, you know, I think a great documentary to watch is "I'm Trying to Break Your Heart." Um, if you ever want to just see some of the things that we talked about, how hard it is to be in a band, how hard it is to deal with record labels, mm-hmm. um, the drugs, the the inner fighting, everything else. But that you know, I think the, that's kind the, of my criteria. The, the acute passive aggressiveness. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's um, you know, I think that's kind of my criteria with these three bands. I mean, they're, they're still Wilco and and uh, and try. Actually, all three have put out great albums in the last year. So um, we can say they're all still kicking. I think Tribe is probably officially called it quits finally. But, um, 
you know, the progression is really important to me. Like, you know, it, it keeps getting better, and that really excites me as a music fan. So should we yeah. hear something from uh, Tribe Called Quest and then take a break yeah. here? Yeah, let's do that. If you really need a hug Afrocentric living is a big shrug A life filled with That's what I love A lower plateau is what we're above If it diss us, we won't even think of We'll nip of the dog and give a big shove This rhythm really fits like a snug glove Like a box of positives, it's a plus love As the trial flies high like a dove Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking Grand Slams. And uh, Christian, who hit, who's hit a Grand Slam in your opinion? Well, I've got, uh, I think, three of the greats here. Um, and I will start with probably my first true love in, uh, in rock and roll. And I think uh, many people will agree with me on this, and that's Led Zeppelin. Um, you know, their, their Grand Slam, um, I, I think the really, you know, sort of indisputable Grand Slam for them has got to be one, you know, Led Zeppelin, um, Led Zeppelin 2, Led Zeppelin 3, Untitled, which is widely known as Led Zeppelin 4, then has the holy physical graffiti. And for, for me, I mean, honestly, I, I, I think Presence is right up in there and and, um, uh, and in Through the Outdoors as well. Um, you know, this, this is a band that, like, I, I, they were as iconic and as important in, as the Beatles in many ways, um, and they really were in the 1970s what the Beatles were in the 60s. They, it was just complete and utter domination. Um, you know, I think to, to stick to the first uh, six that I mentioned, um, which uh, which is obviously no, uh, you know, no small is accomplishment. That, is that cricket scoring? <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, I guess it is, actually. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think in, in the first one you have, like, it's, it's their sort of traditional straight-up, um, you know, blues, uh, you know, post-war, that sort of bruising blues music that was just, uh, that it really developed in the rhythm and blues scene in London um, in, the 19, uh, in the 1960s. And all of these guys were, um, you know, had played with, with Jeff Beck and Ronnie Wood and folks like that. But, I mean, it was, it was sort of, you know, four of the best uh, uh, musicians, I think, really rose to the top here. Um, and, you know, what you... What makes this different, I think, is is just from from the very first um, you know couple of minutes of of that album, you realize that there's this like completely new sort of boogie stomp sound that like you just didn't have in the sort of straight ahead four to the floor drumming um, 
of, uh, of, you know, the Rolling Stones from just a few years earlier. I mean, there was actually just a, a, there was a sort of like, a sort of raunchiness and, and a swagger to this music that was different. And I actually, I attribute a lot of that to, to John Bonham, who I think, I mean, for, for he's my favorite drummer, I think. And, and just, you know, his ability to sort of play that little bit behind the beat and actually sort of responding to the lead guitar, you know, putting down bass triplets and stuff like that. I mean, this was just, it, it, it was just a departure from the, from the way that people had played or the way that people in England had stolen American Southern blues music um, previously. Uh, and, you know, with that came their their second album, which I think is really the, the dawn of heavy metal. Um, and, you know, you've just got incredibly big, thumping sounds there. And then, you know, I, for, uh, Led Zeppelin III's arguably one of their more controversial records, I think, um, I love it. I think, you know, it draws on sort of folk, like traditional English folk and sort of combines it with, with American bluegrass. Um, and then Led Zeppelin IV, uh, the Hobbit album, um, which is, you know, about Middle Earth and fairies and shit. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd love to you be really fly argue on the, the wall with Petras. I'd like to be <laughs> yeah. a fly on the wall when they were naming these fuckers. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, they're... Or writing the lyrics, like <laughs> it's not just naming the shit, um, you know. Yeah, the Misty Mountain Hop, or uh, oh, you mean the actual I mean, album one, two, three, themselves? And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, but uh, you know, the other thing that's really remarkable about that run is, like, to put it in context, it happened in less than three years. Um, and you know, they obviously, uh, as they started to tour the United States, um, developed massive drug hangovers, um, you know, and, uh, and basically became more and more debauched. They, um, uh, they started to slow down a little bit and spaced out their albums a little more, but I mean, that's a hell of a, like, that's an incredibly powerful, uh, you know, creative um, period. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is, that is really a, a, a burst of genius right there. Now, the second band, uh, 
you know, I'd, I'd like to mention is um, is Sleater Kinney, and you guys know this is uh, this is a, a sort of another all time favorite of mine, and, and and I think similarly influential, and um, or excuse me, not not necessarily as influential as, as Led Zeppelin, but I think similarly um, innovative, and uh, you know, in a way that that you think of bands like maybe the Stooges or Nirvana, like these guys just don't sound like anything that really came before them, um, and and. Their uh, their grand slam, I uh, I would assert, starts with um, "Dig Me Out" and uh, then includes the Hot Rock, "All Hands on the Bab" one, one beat, and um, I even think uh, I even think the Woods, and you know that's a pretty big departure, but um, "Dig Me Out" really was was the moment when they they sort of solidified their sound, starting there in '97, and um, and you know wrapping up five albums later. Uh, with the woods, but I mean, there there is nothing I think quite like the uh, sort of twisting like helix of guitars that Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein achieve, and that's sort of the way that the, they punch out these melodies um, that sort of uh, uh, provide this incredible like um, incredibly like agile and sort of bouncing counterpart to um, to Corin Tucker's voice is is just is very cool, um, and uh, you know they they came from this sort of lo-fi. DIY background, but I think what they were trying to achieve uh, in scope, you know, was was to make these really big pop and big metal sounds, um, which they did without even having a, a bassist, which is pretty awesome. And part of it was just by you know the sort of kinetic energy that came out of these guitars, and then um, you know, and and then having one hell of a good drummer. Um, so you know, I really do think that they they created something totally new. I know I can-
moving on to the, I think the third group for me is going to be, uh, is the Beastie Boys. And this is proof that you, you don't need to be totally understood in the moment to, uh, to knock a grand slam. And um, what I mean by that is, you know, you, you start with License to Ill, which is sort of almost a jokey record, right? Like, I mean, we, we've discussed the fact that I, I think I first discovered it in fourth or fifth grade. It probably came out when you, Jeremy, were in what? Exactly, fourth, fourth grade? and fifth grade. <laughs> by the way, it's, it's an album that subject matter is geared toward fourth and fifth grade boys. Um, so, you know, there is something like... Junior high boys and high school boys and college boys. And college boys, yeah. <laughs> There's something sort of wonderfully Imma- like... And immature juvenile. assholes at any age, of any age. <laughs> Yeah, just bratty dicks, basically. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, they were, in addition to that, they were sort of one of the first um, real, you know, white rap groups. Um, but for them, I think the, the interesting part is that they really treated rap as part of, like, a wider sort of post-punk musical backdrop. And I think you can attribute part of that to their their roots in, in New York City, which, of course, is just, like, it's such an incredibly diverse place culturally and artistically. Um, you know, they started out playing punk, but they really liked rap, so fuck it, you know, throw it all together and we'll just, you know, sort of figure it out. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, as we discussed, people didn't really know what to make of this. Um, and... I think with Paul's Boutique, the critical acclaim, you know, their second album, um, the, the critical acclaim sort of started to arrive. And this, of course, was like the, the produced by the Dust Brothers um, and, you know, an incredibly complex, Dense. like, uh, sam- yeah, sampling um, uh, or list of samples that were used. And I think, you know, really something that couldn't have been achieved today just because of the, the the publishing and the licensing would have been a fucking nightmare i mean they would have been sued to death um but uh but at the time you know it was it, it was something that like it really allowed them to sort of explore their their you know creativity without any sort of boundaries on it and you know i, I think it was it, it, people didn't know what to make of it it was like all of a sudden the the you know beer slugging like fratty assholes who were moshing on on you know mtv um might have made like a really kind of weird jazz fusion album <laughs> um so there was sort of like i think uh that was kind of a, a, a disconnect for a lot of folks and then you know they they sort of further i think uh, established that critical acclaim when they came out with check your head which which really sort of refined like that eclectic approach to music and and you know in addition they got a lot of respect i think for for playing all their instruments on that but i think the the crowning achievement in the, the fourth album in the grand slam here has got to be ill communication um which is, uh, you know, the cool part about this album is that kind of like Paul's Boutique and Check Your Head, um, I think it really did challenge, like, the, the band's, you know, diehard critics. It's like, by that point, you really do have to start conceding that these guys know what they're doing um, and well, that I they re- might not be the, the simpletons that we, that we wanted them to be, uh, you know, when their first album came I out. I remember when the, uh, when the first album came out, uh, I believe it was The Village Voice had a, a very brief... Um, uh, review of it that that was simply we get the joke we just don't think it's funny. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. It's it's that was, a, is that a Robert Christow classic? Right. It might have been a Christow. I mean, I probably I didn't probably know who Christow was in 1986, but um, I will tell you that they've eaten their uh, words pretty. That's, pretty that's awesome. Um, so yeah. that, you know, it's always fun uh, to see critics have to backpedal and uh, admit that it they is. they may not have known quite as much as they thought they did when they did when they wrote the scenes. 
Exactly. And, you know, I think the, the good critics out there will tell you that, that they get it wrong. You know, there's a lot of pressure to, to have an opinion about stuff, and um, sometimes you don't get to see the full picture yet. But, yeah, I mean, this it, is ill communication, it, I think, just to, to wrap the, the, you know, sort of thoughts on this album. And, yeah, I'll kick it to you in a second, Jeremy. But, I mean, this is, this is just, like, jam-packed with the sort of, like, jazz-infused breakbeats and, and, like, just these slick instrumentals. But it did also incorporate that really like bratty punk attitude, um, and these these fucking like almost almost like guitar driven like arena rockers. I mean, they're just some monsters on there, um, and uh, you know I, I think um, to to sum it up, I mean nowhere is this is this really better illustrated than on the album opener, which is which is Sure Shot, and um, you know that has like a Jeremy Steig jazz flute sample and a drum break taken from Run DMC's Rock the House, which is just like the coolest um, coolest combination, uh, and it just sort of bounces out of the gate with this like you know with, with their sort of bizarre lyrical fragments and. Um, weirdo pop culture references. So, I mean, I think there's a lot to love in the Beasties. Um, but, Jeremy, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you no, saying? No worries. No, I was just going to, I mean, first of all, three great picks. Uh, I couldn't agree more on all three of the bands you picked. I'm going to just start backwards with the Beasties because I was just thinking as you guys were talking, uh, Ill Communic, or Licensed Ill, sorry, that, um, you know, in my my one stage appearance in a play in my whole <laughs> life in school. <laughs> I, in a, in a torn leather jacket, um, with a bunch of other bratty boys saying, you got to fight for your right to partay. Um, we had a teacher who was very, uh, dead set on us I'm doing mo- the modern sorry, classics of 1986. This was a self-written, um, by my fifth oh, grade teacher. I was present very for that big particular hair. performance. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I believe it was a oh, we did, we, Yeah, it we was, did change uh, lyrics. You have to fight was, for your right. You've got to fight for your right. To rock. To rock, that's true. <laughs> Sorry. We took a liberty with, uh, <laughs> with Ad Rock's lyrics and uh, lots of... Uh, so, you know, the Beasties definitely have a, a place in my heart. And I did dress up as a Beastie Boy for Halloween that year as well. Um, really, you already had the costume. Yeah, exactly. So, um, But yeah, no, I mean, I think the Beasties, it's a, it's a great pick because they sort of... I, I actually wouldn't have thought of it, even though you're you're spot on. And I think you, the thing you nailed about them to me is, is that kind of post-punk take where it's like this is a a group that you know played in hardcore bands did you know but got into dance music and and hip-hop music and and continued to kind of you know really push the boundaries I think more than a lot of groups in in all genres so I mean Chuck Your Head and Paul's Boutique in particular to me are are my favorites I love little communication too but as far as experimentation goes I mean just the samples on Paul's Boutique and, and nobody was doing anything like that and then Chuck Your Head had like straight up hardcore songs in the middle of it with hip hop songs and uh, you know just a, a lot of fun and it was sort of their back too you know it's funny I'm looking at like Paul's Boutique coming out in 89 and 92 and for some reason as a kid that seemed like an eternity bef- between those albums it's not it really that long there these was a days, label dispute but, built yeah, in there too no, there were a lot of samples. things I mean that was uh, you know that was a period when De La Soul got uh, sued by the Turtles by the- for their use of um, uh, an old uh, Turtles tune. Um, that's right. That was the year after Paul's Boutique, and that's why Paul's Boutique is sort of seen as the last of the big like free sample era, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, there was label disputes in there, but it did feel like a really long time, and it did also feel like a reinvention. Um, and it, you know, when we were talking about consistency before with Spoon and, and Wilco, I mean, the Beastie Boys put out three extremely different records. Um, you know, that all had the commonality of their 
you know, that it was very personality driven. Um, and, and that's a great way of putting it, I think. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's, it's gotta be, it's so hard to put out three records that are so different, that are so good. Um, but, I, and you know, I, I think Wyndham, you talk a lot about, um, the way that there were these sort of false well, not false, but I mean, there, there, there are barriers erected between scenes, between genres. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these guys either refused to recognize them or just didn't give a shit or partly because of being in New York, I think. I, you know, I, I do think there's a... You're talking about a band that opened for both Madonna and Public Enemy. And at right. that time, that was <laughs> when there was still a lot of mythology around Public Enemy. I mean, they were scary... Um, you know, they were, I saw them in, uh, New Year's Eve, 1988. Um, you know, they were badass, you know, and you still didn't, you didn't know that, um, yeah, they were like I revolutionaries. Mean, yeah. Was yeah. Like, I mean, they were still, they were still coming out with, um, you know, submachine guns with the, you know, S1W and it wasn't, it, it didn't feel like a put on, it didn't feel like play acting. It felt like it was, you know, legitimate, um, you know, attempt like at political revolution. revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, you know, there were, and the Beastie Boys could somehow, I think by sheer force of personality and the fact that they were well regarded by, um, you know, the hip hop, uh, you know, the standard bearers in hip hop, um, they were able to move from, you know, going and being um, the funny uh, bratty kids on the banana tour to being legitimate um you know, sort of uh, contemporaries of Public Enemy, and that was a really, really—I mean, you think about the the cat, the you know, sort of chasm between those two acts at that time. Um, yeah. You know, they're both regarded as classics now, but believe me, at the time, Madonna fans were not PE fans. <laughs> PE fans were not Madonna <laughs> no. fans, and they were yeah, able to I mean, sort of walk back through both of those. And and I think you hit the nail on the head when you said sort of by sheer force of will and personality. It's like these guys, they knew who they were, but unlike a lot of 20-year-olds, I think at any point in time, they had an incredible amount of like almost sort of Balls. courage and conviction to be that. Yeah, yeah, they were just, they had, yeah, they they were, you know. Um, they were getting away exactly. with it too, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 ironically, have, having said that about Madonna and Public Enemy, I imagine Madonna was a massive Public Enemy fan, and Chuck D is probably a big and Chuck D is a massive Madonna fan, totally. Yeah. But um, anyway, I you know my my sort of take on that is, um, and I'm going to uh, come back to my take on uh, I'll hold off on my take on Sleater Kinney, um, but yeah, uh, Zeppelin, um, it, you know. Everything they did was pretty great. I have one sort of heretical take on that, which is that I'm not a huge fan of their first album, um, but that's that's just a personal taste in the sense that if I have all their other albums to choose from, that would be the last one I'd play. Um, yeah, I know it. I know of its greatness. I just it's it's not more a like an important statement than my favorite yeah. album. You know, it was sort of put them exactly. on the map. And- I know. I know why it's great. I just. It's you not could my you preference. could do without ever hearing since I've been loving you probably, which has yeah. got that sort of like more traditional rhythm and Drawn blues out. stuff. Yeah, and but then, good uh, times, bad times. That's a fucking yeah. banger. Oh, it <laughs> is. It is. And communication breakdown, dazed and confused. Yeah, I don't need to. Yeah, the Beasties are 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 a great one because I mean I feel like I mean they're sort of they're probably a couple years a few years older than me, but it felt very much like contempt being their contemporary. In fact. You know, I remember meeting them when I was in high school. 
Um, you know, I had friends from high school that knew them from, you know, where they had previously gone to school. And, and I remember meeting, um, I think the guy's name was Jim, uh, the guy who was the fourth member who decided to go to college and uh, bailed on the band, um, which probably wasn't the greatest professional decision of all time. Um, I think he went to Michigan. And I just, you know, I just remember seeing those guys out, places like Nightbirds after going to, you know, Pyramid or some club. And, you know, they'd be like, you know, like smashing glasses and, and lighting bread, you know, smoking breadsticks in the restaurant and just, you know, being brats. And it was like, oh, you know, it's kind of annoying um, until you think that it was all kind of of a piece of a, it was almost like a, um, a performance art where they were being themselves at all times and it worked out. Um, I'd like to, uh, I'd love to have a conversation with them about, uh, you know, the, the sort of fondness of looking back. Cause it must've been very fun to be those guys in real time. At the same time, I would also like a, um, a tally of how many times Mike D introduces himself <laughs> um, in the first four albums, <laughs> and now, <laughs> what's it? And, uh, you know, he'd like you to know that he's Mike D. <laughs> he is Mike D. So, um, anyway, that was I've been told uh, I look like Mike D, which has always annoyed me. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> you look like Thomas Dimitrov. Um, yes, fairly, <laughs> yes, fairly uh, uh, obscure reference to people who would be listening to a music podcast. But he's the general manager of the Atlanta Falcons football team. Um, anyway, uh, let's uh, let's take a quick break, and I'll come back with mine. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking Grand Slams, and it is my turn to introduce my Grand Slam, and to the surprise of absolutely nobody, um, my first band is X, uh, with Los Angeles, Wild Gift, Under the Big Black Sun, and More Fun in the New World, albums that came out um, in 79, 80, 81, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 80, 81, 82, and 83, um, and were 
Um, you know, I just read John Doe uh, and Tom DeSavia's uh, book, Under the Big Black Sun, which is a collection of essays about the period during which X emerged. And it was very um, sort of enlightening about how punk was viewed by the people who were actually uh, creating the music. And, and punk rock, for a very, very brief period of time, um, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, or mostly late 70s till about 81 in California was kind of just an outsider's, it was kind of a, a holistic catch-all uh, term for, for anybody who's making outsidery music. So, you know, bands like the Blasters, who were doing pretty straightforward, uh, hard rockabilly, um, were considered punk because they weren't making um, pop or you know, new wave or whatever uh, convention was in vogue at the time. So it was really anybody who was sort of iconoclastic was viewed as punk. And then ultimately that was um, sort of uh, um, uh, taken over by the more aggressive Orange County bands that were of the same, um, you know, sort of stripe as Black Flag, Circle Jerks. Descendants, um, TSOL, bands like that, and where it got very much more male, very much more uniform, and very much more aggressive and, you know, to a degree dangerous. But there was this period when, you know, bands like X and the Blasters were hanging out with bands like Los Lobos and the Plugs uh, from the east side of L.A., Mexican guys, and it was a, it sounded to me, um, as I read this sort of, you know, uh, retrospective uh, picture of it painted by John Doe and, and some of his um, contemporaries uh, is a really kind of an interesting and um, eclectic and uh, inclusive kind of a, a of a scene. So anyway, that's a little bit of a, uh, a step away from the music itself, which in this case, uh, one of my favorite bands. And I was going to actually make the comparison between X and Sleater Kinney in the sense that uh, a lot of bands with two singers are, you know, harmoni- are focused on harmonizing, and Sleater Kinney X take more of like a uh, fundamental country um, take on having two singers, where it's almost argumentative or combative, or you know, they're sort of playing, they're sort of pushing against each other rather than, you know, sort of coming together like a, you know, I would say they're more. Uh, Conway and Loretta or June and, and Johnny than they are, say, Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Christian. It, you know, you're a much bigger Sleater Kenny fan. Um, would you, would you, you know, sort of be, a, would, would you see what I'm saying about the parallel between that and, and sort of uh, it country-ish kind of roots? Absolutely. Um, in fact, yeah, we've talked about this before. I've, I've tried to put together a uh, a playlist of of my favorite songs in which there's that sort of um, push pull. I, what I wouldn't call it yeah I wouldn't call it call and response because it, it but it's nece- but I mean you often have uh, you have like sort of interlocking um, you know vocal parts that line up for certain periods of the song but then diverge again and you know you'll have uh, two different singers singing different parts completely um, I love that effect and I, I find it like uh, it just it's it's sort of fascinating how many sort of different parts of my brain I guess it's stimulating at the same time um, but uh, you know and you, there there are a couple of places um, but I, I mean I, I think 
you know that that in particular, um, Sleater Kenny is sort of one of the best uh, best examples of that. And um, if anybody, by the way, knows what this actually if there's if there is if this is a specific technique, um, I would love to know what it's actually called. And this is where my my ignorance of, of um, you know uh, sort of academic Your lack music of classic comes into training. Play. You know, yeah, it's interesting. Exactly. You know who else I think really um, plays at this, and another one of my favorites, uh, and probably for the same reason, uh, as you say, it stimulates uh, a lot of different parts of your brain all at once, is the Libertines. Um, yeah, you know, Carl Barat and uh, yeah, absolutely, and Pete Doherty, but definitely, um, definitely pull that off well. Yeah, and actually, and I, the Interpol does it. Do they? I mean, I, I never really thought of it with Interpol. Yeah, I never thought of them as two singer. No, band. but it, it isn't. Um, but they, Musically, on, but on the, no, on the album, I'm, I'm just, no, Paul Banks records his voice and then <laughs> sings, uh, different parts over it, um, oh, gotcha. which actually, yeah, which, which I realized, which I honed into when I saw him in concert recently. So, but anyway, so, uh, X is a band I, you know, I've spoken about, uh, at length, but the first four records, they were discovered, um, by Ray Manzarek, who became their champion and their biggest fan. And, and at the time, uh, it's hard to imagine now, but they were, um, Real critics, darlings. Um, they had, you know, more fun in the new world was named Album of the Year by Time Magazine, which at the time was a big deal. And somehow they just never clicked with that many people. Uh, and uh, they are, they have uh, become an act that uh, is has an extremely, extremely devoted fan base that uh, should be larger than it is. favorites and then number two is another band i feel like you know i'm I'm sort of treading a little bit of uh um familiar territory but um you know there's reasons for um that and and sadly the reason uh my second band husker do uh who did zen arcade new day rising flip your wig and in my opinion candy apple gray uh completes the grand slam other people might take uh, Zen Arcade's pre- predecessors and, and, and work it that way but I actually am a big fan of Candy Apple Grey their major label debut um, like I said unfortunately we've been talking about them a lot lately due to the passing of, of Grant Hart um, but I you know I can't think of four albums uh, other than Los Angeles Wild Gift Under the Big Black Sun and More Fun of the New World that I listen to more through the 80s and 90s than, than uh, those Who Screw Do records This is 
And then finally, um, you know, my last artist is Prince. And I think you could, it's funny because he's one of those people, uh, one of those artists that, uh, you know, is prolific in the way that, um, you know, we, we cited that could be problematic. Um, and he did, uh, you could argue, uh, around the world in the day uh, could be, I, I would argue that it stopped his hot streak. Other people might, uh, could sort of, um, include it in his in his uh, and if you did include it around the world in a day you would have a very very extensive streak because after that comes Sign of the Times Black Album uh, etc and I even like Love Sexy but I'm going with in this case Dirty Mind Controversy 1999 and Purple Rain and I went back and I listened to Dirty Mind and Controversy uh, today two eight song very short albums that just sort of uh, I try to think back to 1980 and 1981 when these albums came back and just think about how alien this guy really must have seemed uh, to the general population it's hard to really explain uh, particularly to Christian what this guy's appearance on the scene I mean this is a guy who on Dirty Mind is wearing women's underwear and a bandana, and that's it. And this is, you know, this is the beginning of the Reagan years, and you know, more than once on the first on those two albums, and this is, you know, following his debut, which of course had "I Want to Be Your Lover," but you know, this is between "Dirty Mind" and "Controversy." There's more than one instance where he poses the question for you: Am I black or white? Am I straight or gay? You know, it's like he, he was always toying with the audience's expectation. And um, and their uh, a perception of him, and he just was having fun with it because he didn't give a fuck, and he was making awesome funky music. And then you get to 1999, which is a double album, uh, sort of an odd double album because it's only got 11 songs on it, but um, a lot of bangers: Little Red Corvette, Let's Pretend We're Married. Uh, uh, boy, Lady Cab Driver, 1999 itself. I mean, it was the one that sort of announced that he had found exactly where he was going to be as an artist. And then, of course, Purple Rain, which is just the crowning achievement where he had the number one song, album, and film 
um, at the same time and, and his reign, pardon the pun, um, was, was complete. He had taken over the world and it's just a great fucking album start to finish. There isn't a dud on that album. So those are mine. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I think those are again, like all grand slams I, I fully agree with. And it was funny when you were talking about X and Sleater Kinney, you know, one of the things I would have said about Sleater Kinney in the last segment was that just they were just better than everyone else in doing what they were doing, but also sounded really different. And I think X was kind of similar in that sense. Like they were just a level above the contemporaries and a level above in songwriting, a level above in, in style, level above in, in you know, musicality. Those four they were albums true are original. Yeah. Yeah, those those four albums are really amazing. And and you turn me on to those pretty young win and it's a band that I often kind of you know, use the neutral milk hotel thing on. I'm not totally clear that like people are going to like these guys as much as I do, but they tend to, cause they're that good. Um, who's do. We just ran through, um, a, a great pod on those guys. And, and, you know, of course those albums are, are amazing. And, and, uh, I'm not going to go too kind of heavily on who's do, but agree wholeheartedly on, on those four. Um, I do, I went back and listened to candy apple gray post our pod again, and it's, it's much better than I remember. Um, and then the Prince, I'm less familiar actually with Dirty Mind and Controversy. I mean, 1999 and Purple Rain, like um, sort of Licensed Ill, which we talked about in Christian segment, was very much my youth. I mean, those were like huge MTV albums, huge music video yeah. albums. Yeah, and also like both awesome, you know, and, and completely yeah. like danceable. And, and, and it was another thing that we talked about before with Prince is that like he crossed over into the rock crowd, the dance crowd, the, you know, um, sort of just obviously the pop hit, you know, top 40 crowd. I mean, he was just, he was sort of everywhere at that time. He also came and, out uh, of the, came out of the gate at 18 years old or 17 years old and produced and never had a producer. Yeah. Which I is mean, nuts. nuts. I mean, he's you a genius. About, and, you know? and then you get, you know, you start listening to dirty mind. Second song on dirty mind is when you were mine, which is a straight ahead, just beautifully written right. pop song that Cindy Lauper charted with, uh, mm-hmm. only a couple years later. But, you know, you, you forget how many songs this guy just tossed off and other people had number one hits with. I mean, you you know, nothing compares to you. Yeah, uh, what if God moon- was one of us? Um, <laughs> he was moonlighting as a ghostwriter for the most successful, for the number two through five most successful pop stars in America. Yeah. He, of I mean, course, was occupying the number one spot with his own stuff. Manic Monday. I mean, all these songs yeah, that are just hit. toss-offs, you know. I mean, they just like, ah, I'm not using this one here. He's one of those guys, too, when you hear those songs, you, you know, once you know Prince, wrote it you can you kind of can hear his voice in all those songs which is always cool but i mean when you were mine by cindy lopper great song it's a great song by prince but it it, you know he went from pretty straightforward straightforward um you know pop sensibility to something like sister which is the second to last or second or third to last song on dirty mind which is about literally incest um, <laughs> you know it's it's and it freaked the fuck out of people and it, you yeah know, he was a, truly controversial I mean it wasn't like I remember Prince being well I even remember sort of like all you know I was in fifth grade I guess or, or you know somewhere around there um, early years actually probably third or whatever so third grade when, when yeah and you know like he was sort of a, a, a dude magnet and a chick magnet. You know what I mean? Like everybody yeah. thought he was, he was just sort of like sexy across them. A lot like Bowie really, but even more, I think unique. I mean, I love Bowie and I'm not trying to knock Bowie at all here, but like, 
Bowie was very good at co-opting styles and, and making them Bowie. Like Prince Correct. was his Prince, own entity, 100%. Prince was like, a force, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, it was an absolute cult of personality. He's uh, One's almost reflecting, or, you know, absorbing and like serving as a prism and then reflecting styles back out. One is just sort of like uh, a, a source of energy in his own right that's just projecting yeah. outward the entire time. Supernova. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I do think that you you pick a great run of albums here by Prince Wyndham. I mean, it's uh, it, there, this is sort of like the the really uh, Dirty Mind and, and Controversy were actually the two albums that I listened to even before like 1999 and, and Purple Rain. Um, and you know, you can hear like it was just so bizarre to me that you would have this combination of like insanely sexually explicit sort of bordering on, you know, even, I mean, even by today's standards, sort of lewd lyrics and songs like... Head? You know, Head <laughs> or... No, Head, Sister, um, or Jack You Off. Yeah. Um, and then you also have, you know... Or, for, that, for that matter, Do Me Baby. <laughs> yeah, as I'm <laughs> thinking about this. Um, um, but then you've also got, you know, Ronnie Talk to Russia. Like, you, you do have, I mean, he, he, was, he was transforming at this point from somebody who was, who was sort of exclusively seen as this, like, sort of erotic Living like, sex gone. object. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, giant purple. Um, no, but, he, uh, but, but to somebody who was actually also sort of very politically active. And I mean, if you think about it, like this was the, and it partly was the, the Reagan years in which he, um, you know, he sort of developed an act, uh, an activist stance and, and, you know, was, became known for his mind. And then, you know, look, he was the guy, he single-handedly took on like the recording industry. Yeah. He changed yeah. his name to a fucking symbol. Like, I mean, <laughs> he went to war with these guys, like, you know, and said that artists deserve to be compensated for their work. And, and that's a that's an incredible legacy to have. So, I mean, he's he's a he's an amazing guy. Yeah, he's badass. And, uh, you know, just like, just coming out so fully formed. That was what was so crazy about Prince, too, is that there was there was a no, consummate professional. I mean, just, there's, there's they, nobody you constantly yeah. talk about. We always talk about the evolution of Bowie, you know, the sort of chameleon. Um, it, it, of sorts, and it, not Prince. Prince was born Prince. No, nah, he he was much more like sort of James Brown. I mean, in the sense of like just being totally professional, Certainty. completely. Yeah, yeah, just he was gonna he was gonna be huge, and those songs were massive. I mean, the first three songs on 1999, you know, obviously the self-titled Little Red Corvette, Delirious. I mean, those, those were huge, you know, hits. Mm-hmm. And the videos were great. I mean, you had people in, like, surgeon outfits. It was almost like he, you know, co-opted sort of the funkadelic weirdness and women in lingerie, you know, playing instruments. And it was just, it was bizarro, um, but all amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay, are we realizing that we should probably have a Prince podcast at some point? Yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, it's like, we've, we've got to do an episode on this. Although, I also would like to point out that, that you've definitely, uh, you've, You've repped Minnesota pretty hard for the, um, I did, for the I did, Grand Slam. Yeah. I could have gone the replacements. I That's actually true. thought of it, but replacements, of course, like everything else, um, they could have hit a Grand Slam, but then they fucked it up for themselves. Um, Shot themselves in the <laughs> Nice triple. Face. Really, yeah. really solid triple. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, they get busted for rolls. Thrown out at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 50-game suspension. Um, but yeah, they... I, I uh, well, wait, let's talk about this though. I mean, who who do you think has the, the potential to pull this off in the um, you know uh, currently or 
because we talked about some of the near misses. Um, you know who who's who's on target who's on track, track right now? I mean, because I mean, I think there are, I think there are a couple out there. The the one that I mean, it just it's it's going to take a, a little bit of time to settle in to, and a little bit of space before you can really you know make this claim. But I mean, I think LCD Sound Systems right there. Um, another band that I would say is is right on the edge is actually Queens of the Stone Age. Um, and I think a lot of folks would make the argument, and I'm thinking about uh, three albums that have been released very recently, I think a lot of people might make the argument for The National. Um, yeah. And partly in a way that, uh, you know, consistency favors Grand Slam producers. You know, if you are if you are a really steady, consistent band and, and you're, you know, you're, you're tightly, you, you practice a ton and, and you're, you're good live and you just, you have a sound and you're not afraid to stick with it, um, that that can be, you know, uh, I think really helpful when ones that have been considered critically. The and and you know, as as we've discussed here, the hardest and sort of most impressive in some respects uh, grand slams, I think, do come from from um, you know folks like Prince or maybe the Beasties who who really do like show so much differentiation between albums. Um, and in that respect, it's really difficult to evaluate, like, the bands that might be, you know, zigzagging around and creating different types of albums that I really like. Um, Look at and you, Kendrick. Sort of yeah. Being able to, yeah, exactly. Being able to predict whether those guys are, are going to get the Grand Slam is, is you know, is impossible. Um, but, but yeah, Kendrick's great. I mean, I think, you know, Vince Staples is another one um, who you've got, you've got to keep an eye on him. Chance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's got two. Um, you know, obviously you could probably throw Kanye in the Grand Slam mix as well. Yeah. Already he's done. already there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, yeah, it's is interesting. I mean, I think the hip hop thing is, is, um, there's a lot more albums coming out. Album, yeah, and then there's exactly. other people like I'm, you know, I've talked Brown. about on, on my favorite albums of 2017 thus far. You know, I, I think the first two Big Thief albums are amazing, so I'd like to see what they do next. And Wax a Hatch. You know, yeah, Wax a Hatch. She's got three, I think, that are, are all three are very, very good. Um, so she's she's right on the edge. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you know, just I think it takes a little while for albums to come out now, too. And with so much music in your face, um, I tend to like, you know, like a lot of the bands we talked about here, at least, you know, for my, my segment, there was sort of a buildup, right? I was anticipating that next album, kind of waiting for it, you know, and, and cause there was, you know, not as much to choose from. And I think, you know, with the sort of deluge of music that you get all every day, you know, you got to sort of step back a little bit to look at, you know, who's, you know, look at these little album runs because we just named off quite a few that are pretty good. And, and let's not forget the world's longest home run trot, which would go to New Jersey's own The Wrens. True. Um, that, right, they, uh, they, I think they hit guys, this. They, they hit a ball that's still going. It's about a sneak, sneak peek. So let's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 8,000 8, feet and still rising. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's it's absolutely right. I mean, I'm I'm super excited about that, and and that's definitely. I mean, just given the gestation period of, of the recording process, you know, going to reflect a lot of um, uh, a, a lot of change. I think artistically, so um, I'm I'm excited about that. Mm-hmm. Should we take a quick break and uh, come back with uh, what are you listening to and add a few songs to the playlist? Yes, we yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we are. 
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We are going to end this podcast the same way we end every podcast, and that is, what are you listening to? And what are you listening to, Christian? Well, uh, I actually just had the, the opportunity the other day to see, um, to see Wire on a three-day run that they, uh, the three days sort of abbreviated residency at, at Baby's All Right, um, which is, you know, a, a pretty incredible venue for, uh, wow. for a band of that um, uh, ability and and acclaim. Um, these guys are, you know, they played a, a, a bunch um, a bunch of their terrific songs from the eighties off um, uh, off Pink Flag and Missing Chairs and Ideal Copy, which was really exciting. Um, and uh, as well, um, you know, played uh, played some of their their newer songs from the last five or six years, um, sort of from their self titled album in two thousand thirteen on. And you know, I. I've got to say, speaking of bands that continuously evolve um, and that continue to sort of push themselves in, in new directions, um, I think these guys were, you know, a, an outstanding sort of post-punk band in the 80s, um, I, starting with Pink Flag, which is just one of my all-time favorite records. Uh, you know, they... I don't think they ever stood still long enough or quite long enough necessarily to get the sort of huge... Um, uh, popular following because in, in many respects, you know, by the time, by the time America's heard the last album, it's a year or two later and they've already written, you know, new material that sounds nothing like it. So, um, you know, that, that might've actually worked to their disadvantage, but it certainly didn't seem to bother them. And, um, you know, I think, uh, they, they were always sort of pushing the boundaries. So that was, that was an awesome show. It was really, really fun. Jared, what are you listening to? Um, so I've been digging on the um, the album that came out uh, by Alves, A L V V A Y S, and uh, the new album Antisocial. Canuds, and it's a uh, I have a super soft spot for like synthy '80s sounding pop, and I got into the the single in in the undertow or in undertow, and and you know it's just it's a good like dreamy synth pop record that I've been digging on quite a bit. The first three songs you? on that album are outstanding, by the way. It's like, that's a really good little run right there. Um, oh, so I actually, I love that album. Good to know. I've been, uh, I've been um, sort of bouncing around, traveling a bunch, so I've been listening to a bunch of podcasts, and um, I, the one I'm uh, very keen on at the moment is the Tarfu Report with Matt Taibbi and Alex Perrine, and it's a very funny um uh, very solidly researched and, and analytical political podcast, but also very funny and, and two guys that are obviously are, are friends and enjoy each other's company and make each other laugh a lot. And um, I will uh, I'll suffice it to say that they had a, a segment last week that made me laugh out loud, which was uh, where they read segments uh, from both Tony Robbins' self-help book and Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. And they had to guess which was which, and it was pretty damn difficult. So um, that was uh, that was my week's amusement. And uh, so here we go. Uh, let's put a song on the um, top eight thousand seven hundred forty-two songs of all time. Jer, um, I'm going to go with "The Hole of the Moon" by the Water Boys. I recently uh, have been traveling a lot too, and, and had that song blaring in my earbuds, and it's just a great, great tune. So, Christian. 
I will add uh, Bring on the Lucy, Free to People uh, by John Lennon off Mind Games. Nice. nice. And I'm going to go with I've Made Enough Friends by the Wrens, a uh, band awesome. that I... One of my, my How is that not on there? I highly anticipate them uh, <laughs> completing their triple. Uh, I just sort of assumed that was on there. <laughs> no, it's on That's every other funny. mix I've ever made. Yeah, um, exactly. So there you go. One of my favorite uh, songwriters and somebody we're going to be hopefully interviewing in the very near future. So uh, stay tuned, and I think we're going to um, have a conversation with Charles Bissell in the not-so-far-flung uh, future. Anyway, Excellent. thanks, you guys, so much for uh, doing this. This is a lot of fun, and I will talk to you all soon. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.